Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the New Denver Church Podcast. My name is Norton, and we are in a series called You Lost Me at Leviticus, and this is part 9b. So in the last message, we discussed chapters 18 through 20 of Leviticus, and we talked a whole lot about sex because that is a big part of these chapters. And then we talked about the most famous verse in Leviticus where it says to love your neighbor as yourself. And this whole section of Leviticus, it's sometimes called the holiness code. um, And that's because it's all about Israel uh, and how Israel is supposed to live as a holy, holy people. And holiness in Leviticus is not an abstract concept. It's a very concrete concept. It's it's about sex and clothes and grain and food and, and how you treat your, your neighbor. It's these very concrete things. Now, there's one question that we're going to discuss today, and uh, it's a question that's certainly raised in Leviticus 18 and 19 and 20, but honestly, it's been brewing in this entire series. It's one you can't help but ask all throughout the book of Leviticus, especially If you're a person of faith, if you are a follower of Jesus, um, if you believe that the Bible is inspired by God and it contains wisdom from God about what we should believe and about how we should live our lives, if you believe all that, then you come to a book like Leviticus and you can't help but read it and ask, well, is this how we're supposed to live our lives? Are, Are we supposed to follow all of these rules, all of these laws, all of these practices? And if not, because clearly none of us do, which of these laws or which of these rules or which of these practices are we supposed to follow and which ones do we not? Because it's not an issue that we face as much when we read the New Testament, right? You read Jesus' teachings and he says, love your enemies. Yep, we should follow that one. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Yep, we should follow that one. Uh, Forgive someone when they sin against you. Yep, we should follow that one, right? And you read the other parts of the New Testament. Paul, Paul's letters and his teachings about faith. James' teaching about wisdom. John's teaching about love. And, And it's often very clear, not just that we should follow those things, but how we should follow many of those things in our lives. But we get to Leviticus, and you read it, and it's it's... You can't help but ask, are there any of these ancient rules that we should actually still follow? And and I think the default answer for most people is, well, no, of course not. I mean, Leviticus was a set of rules given to this people of Israel more than 3,000 years ago, and we don't follow these rules today, partly because we're not Israelites, right? And partly because Jesus came, if you're a follower of Jesus, and he changed all of that. And... uh, And we believe that sometimes because if you read the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews seems to suggest that Jesus, you know, fulfilled all of these laws and we don't have to follow them anymore. There's some other verses in the New Testament that suggest that Christians don't follow these Old Testament laws anymore. Paul writes uh, this whole letter called Galatians. We did a series on that a few years ago. And in a sense, the entire letter, Paul is making this argument that if you are a Gentile, God has given his grace to you through his son Jesus, and it had nothing to do with you keeping the Old Testament law. Um, So we don't have to follow all that stuff anymore. Now, the truth is, most of us don't follow the rules and laws of Leviticus, not because we have this deep theological or biblical reasoning for it, but mainly just because Leviticus is really weird. And it's strange, and it's about this ancient culture that was so different from ours, and it's, it's, it's really obvious that we don't offer sacrifices anymore, right? We don't, we don't understand skin diseases the same way they did. We don't have a high priest like they do. We don't have a tabernacle set up in the middle of our neighborhood, you know? We don't, we don't do all these rituals that, that play such a huge part of Leviticus. We just, we don't do those things anymore. We don't worship God in that way or practice our faith in that way anymore. But as I hope you've seen, um, there are many messages and insights that the book of Leviticus does have for us. And so then we come to a passage like chapter 19 in Leviticus that we just read, 
And I think we would all read, you know, the verse, love your neighbor as yourself. And we would say, well, yeah, of course we should follow that rule, right? We don't have to throw that one out. In fact, I wish everybody would follow that rule. I mean, our whole world would be a million times better if everyone loved their neighbor as themselves. And how about the one about not lying <laughs> or, or not holding grudges or, or treat the elderly with respect? Like those are good rules too. And suddenly there are these teachings you come across in Leviticus and, and in the rest of the Old Testament that it's like, yeah, we should still follow that. And I mean, literally, we should literally follow that one. In fact, uh, the whole law of Moses can be that way when you stop and read it. The, the law of Moses are all the rules that are found in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's some stories sprinkled in those books as well, but these laws that are found in those four books, they're the laws that were given to Israel to follow. There's a lot of them that we don't follow today, right? Kind of like Leviticus, but there are some that we still do. I mean, the Ten Commandments. Most people would say, those are still pretty helpful. It would be really good if we all followed those. In fact, quite literally followed those. And so the question is, how do we decide what laws should still be followed from the Old Testament, from those four books, and which laws should not? And at least if you're a follower of Jesus who reads the Old Testament and you consider it part of God's word, what do you do with these laws? Because it's not always clear what to do with all of them, which ones we should follow, which ones we shouldn't. So that's the question we're going to wrestle with in the podcast today. And obviously, it's a broader question about the Old Testament law in general, all of these rules given to Israel. But of course, Leviticus is one of the biggest sections of this law and probably one of the most confusing sections of this law when it comes to asking this question. Now, one quick qualifier. Um, I don't think the question should be which parts of Leviticus or which parts of the law, which rules are relevant to us and which ones are not. <laughs> because I think the entire book is still relevant to us today. And I'm going to explain more of that as we go forward in the podcast, but we wouldn't be studying this book for 13 weeks and what's going to end up being like 26 you know, messages or podcasts if that wasn't the case, if, if, if we didn't think it was relevant. Hopefully by now you've been listening and if you've been listening for very long, you've seen and you've experienced that Leviticus can be hugely relevant, that it has deep and profound insights about God and about ourselves and about the world and about a life of, of faith and purpose, about a community that embodies justice in the world and love and compassion and purity and wholeness and forgiveness and peace, right? And, and I could go on and on. E even if we concluded that many of the rules that we read are wrapped up in a different context and are rules that were never meant for us to be followed in a literal sense, the question is not, are they still relevant for us? I think they are, and I'm going to tell you why. The question is more about how do we sort through all of them? Like the ones that we just read in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. Do we have any rules that we should still follow in a more literal and straightforward sense? And first, I want to share a simple answer about all of these rules, about this Old Testament law, and how to start thinking about it. I want to share a simple answer I discovered uh, many, many years ago. Um, it was helpful for me at the time, and, uh, and then we'll, I'll, I'll share a, a little bit more of a complex answer. Uh, the simple answer to this question, are there any rules we should literally still follow? And if so, which ones are they, and which ones do we not follow, and how do we sort through all that? The simple answer uh, came first from a guy named John Calvin. <laughs> now, I don't think I knew it was from John Calvin when I first heard it. Um, and there were probably others that had talked about these kind of things. But he was one of the first theologians in the 16th century, way back when, to describe the Old Testament law in, uh, in a very specific way. He said that all of the laws in the Old Testament, all of those rules, 
in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, can be thought of and classified according to three categories. There is moral law, there's civil law, and there's ceremonial law. So let me explain these real quick. Moral laws are those that are like the Ten Commandments, right? Simple and clear things you should do or you should not do because they are either morally good or morally wrong, right? So don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat on your spouse, right? These are moral laws. So those would, any laws you find in the Old Testament law um, would fit, that fit that, that sort of description would fit into that first category of moral laws. The second category is civil law. These are laws that punish crimes, laws that resolve conflicts between people, or laws that maintain order in society. Um, These are like the legal codes that everyone agrees to live by. And sometimes they come from moral principles like don't steal from someone, but if you steal from someone, that's wrong, and here's the punishment that you have to pay. (laughs) Here's the fine. Or, or here's the penalty, right? And, and then sometimes these civil laws are more like traffic laws that we have today, right? It's not that there's a moral right and wrong in the universe related to these red octagonal signs with the word stop on them. It's just that we've all decided that we should obey traffic laws and it would make all of our lives so much better if we all stopped at these intersections where we see these signs. And if you don't do that, there's a penalty for not doing that, right? And so in the Old Testament, you have these big sections of laws that are about all these kinds of things. Because remember, Israel is creating a new society. They're going to live as a new nation. So they have penalties for crime and penalties for how to administer justice, Um, And so that's the second category called civil law. Sometimes the term judicial law is used here. So there's moral law, there's civil law. And then the third category, Calvin said, is ceremonial law. And, And these are all the laws in the Old Testament that are about the ceremonies and the rituals that Israel is to keep. And uh, this is a big part of the law, and it's important for us because Leviticus is chock full of these kinds of ceremonial laws. All the laws about sacrifices and purity and food laws and holidays and all of those sorts of things. And so Calvin said that the Old Testament law fits, all, all the laws in the Old Testament law fit into one of these three categories. It's either a moral law, a civic uh, law, or a Um, a civil law, or a ceremonial law. Now, let me give you just a a church history side note here. If you like history, you'll enjoy these next few minutes. If not, uh, you can skip ahead. But John Calvin lived in the 16th century. So um, Calvin and Martin Luther, another guy, uh, were the two biggest theologians of that time. And they were the two biggest leaders of what became the Protestant Reformation. Now, Luther is an interesting guy. Luther had a really negative view of the Old Testament law. In fact, Luther championed this idea that the Old Testament is all about law and the New Testament is all about grace. And we live in an era of grace, not law. And so for Luther, the only purpose of the Old Testament law, for Israel back then, and even for us still today, is to just show people how sinful they are, how terrible they are, how much they need Jesus, and how much they need God's grace, right? Because once you give people a whole bunch of laws to obey, they realize how sinful they are because they can't obey all these laws. Maybe they were doing all these things before, but once you put some boundaries in place and they keep going past the boundaries, it shows them how bad of people they are, and it shows them how they don't obey these laws very well, and oftentimes they can't or don't want to obey these laws. And so for Luther, 
The only reason for us to read all of these Old Testament laws today is so that you can become really depressed and dismayed and in despair because you realize that God's standards are so high. God requires all of these things of his people, and nobody could ever keep all of these laws perfectly. And hopefully it drives you to this place of despair and begging God for his mercy and his grace, right? And you can see a little bit of this thinking in Paul's writings, uh, particularly the book of Romans and Galatians, if you're familiar with those books at all, which, by the way, were Luther's favorite books of the Bible. Um, But honestly, this thinking, a lot of it just comes out of Luther's own personal story. Luther's own pain, his own wrestling in his life. Luther was a Catholic monk He was an Augustinian monk. He lived in this monastery where there were incredibly high standards. And so he kept trying to do all of these things and play by all of the rules in the monastery and all of these rules that were associated with holiness before God and righteousness before God and all the expectations that went along with that. And remember, he lived in basically the medieval world where where that whole worldview sort of shaped everything and and also his father, uh, he has father issues. His father wanted him to be a lawyer, and he decided not to be a lawyer, and he went to be a monk, and his father was disappointed in him because he became a monk. And so Luther goes through this existential crisis that shapes his life. It shapes his faith, and, and he comes to this conclusion that you can never live up to all of these standards and that you can only have a relationship with God once you realize how impossible the standards are and and that God sent Jesus to show us that. And so um, at the time, Luther then transforms that into his views about the whole church. And so he sees that the Catholic church at the time, it's all about law and it's all about rituals and it's all about doing these things. And none of it is about grace, he thinks. And so Luther's personal story It shapes everything he believes. It shapes the reformation he starts and helps launch, right? But for us today, the important point is for Luther, there was no good purpose in the law of the Old Testament except to help you understand that you really need Jesus. You cannot keep the law. You need Jesus. And so for Luther, the law isn't really relevant anymore. It just points people to Jesus. Now, Calvin comes along a few years later. Uh, Luther's in Germany. Calvin is uh, French, and then he lives in what's now called Switzerland. Um, and he comes along a few years later, and they have some very similar views about a lot of things. There's a lot of problems in the church at the time, and they often see those problems in the same ways and try to set about reforming and doing things. That's why it's called the Reformation. Um, but when it comes to the Old Testament law, Calvin has a little bit of a different take. He believes that there is something still useful about the Old Testament law. It's not all negative. It's not all about people are really bad, right? And people are always going to do the wrong thing. And so if you just give them some rules and put some boundaries in place, it's going to show that they always break the rules and they always push past the boundaries and it's going to show how bad they are, right? That's Luther. And Calvin agrees with that, but he also thinks that the Old Testament law had a positive role. It wasn't all negative. That there was something inherently good about all of these laws, all of these boundaries, all of these rules that were given to Israel. That they, they, they actually can reveal something about what is right and wrong in the world. And uh, just another side note, this is like a side note to this long side note. Um, Calvin is not a monk like Luther. Uh, Calvin does not live in a community and grow up in a community of rigorous discipline where he can't do all of the things that are expected of him. Calvin never has this existential crisis in his life that Luther has. Luther is a monk. Do you know what Calvin is? He's a lawyer. (laughs) That's right. He's a lawyer. Some of you are cheering. The lawyers and legal people are cheering. Everyone else is going like, boo, right? Because his whole vocation is wrapped up in understanding rules, in classifying rules, 
in figuring out which rules apply in which situations. That's what lawyers do. And then in making sure that people in society live by the right rules. That is who Calvin is. So Calvin comes to all of this Old Testament law with a very different perspective. And he says, basically, I think all of the rules in the Old Testament can actually be useful for us today. I think we should still follow some of these rules. I mean, it's clear that some of them we should not follow, but others we should follow. They're not just negative. They can have a use for us today. And so he actually wrestles with the same question that we're discussing. Now, he's wrestling with it, you know, 500 years ago. So again, different context, but he's wrestling with that same question. How do you decide if there's some benefit to these rules, if there's something good about all of these laws that were given to Israel, you know, for him, 2,500 or whatever years before, how do you decide which of these rules or laws should be followed in our culture today and which ones should not? And so Calvin is the one who comes up with this classification system that says all of the laws in the Old Testament are either moral laws, civil laws, or ceremonial laws. And in the case of ceremonial laws, we do not follow those today. This is Calvin speaking, because Jesus supersedes those laws, right? We don't have to offer sacrifices anymore because because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, and we don't have these food laws because Jesus said that all foods are clean. So the ceremonial laws were good for Israel for that time, but we don't follow them anymore. Calvin would say the same with the civil laws. Those were for the nation of Israel at that time. We live in a different nation, and so we do not obey those laws today. Now, We might, Calvin would think, develop some of our own civil laws that have some similarities to some of Israel's civil laws. We we might learn some things from Israel's civil laws about how a society should be governed. So there's definitely a more positive view there, but we don't obey them literally anymore, which leaves the moral laws. And for Calvin... These are the ones that we still obey. These are the ones that are still transcendent. These are the ones that are not tied to a specific culture or a specific time. They are about human morality in general. And so we still follow those things. So the goal of someone reading the Old Testament law would be to ask, is this, when you come across a verse or a passage, is this a moral law, a civil law, or a ceremonial law? Because if it's moral, then it still applies to us, and we should follow it. If it's a civil law for ancient Israel, it does not directly apply to us, but we might learn some things about it for for what kind of laws we should have in our society today that would also reflect God's moral truth. So we don't follow it literally, but we can actually learn a lot from the civil laws. And then if it's a ceremonial law, we don't follow it at all. Now, just to wrap up (laughs) the church history lesson in all of this, and then we'll get more specifically back to Leviticus, uh, Calvin becomes a pastor in the city of Geneva, which is now Switzerland, And it's based on these ideas about the Old Testament law that Calvin actually begins implementing changes and reforms in the city of Geneva. And he basically says, our laws in this city, it was, Geneva was like an independent city kind of at the time, our laws in this city, in our society, should actually reflect Old Testament law. Because Old Testament law is good. It's not all bad, like Luther saying over in Germany, right? It's actually good. And our laws should reflect the moral part of the Old Testament law, because that's clear. We definitely still follow that. And in fact, our laws in Geneva should also be similar to the civil parts of the Old Testament law. We should create a society here that through its laws and through its legislation reflects what God wants. We should create what would be called a new Israel. (laughs) And this idea 
that, that Calvin really pioneers in the city of Geneva, this idea becomes very influential in the movement that comes out of Calvin's sort of influence, what, what becomes called reformed Christianity, that a society can and should be governed by God's laws. I mean, the Puritans are, are the example A of this tradition, right? They, they, they come and they are trying to set up a society that is governed by God's laws, and they're, they're following exactly what Calvin does in Geneva. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, many of you have no idea what that is, but if you're a Presbyterian or you grew up Presbyterian, you've heard of that, right? The Westminster Confession of Faith has an entire section about the Old Testament law that outlines these exact categories that Calvin came up with. There are moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. We don't follow the ceremonial or the civil anymore, but we do follow the moral laws. And I should say a lot of American Christians today, particularly conservative Christians, have also inherited this perspective. Now, they don't even know it. Many of them wouldn't be able to articulate that this comes from the Reformed tradition or this sort of comes from the influence of John Calvin hundreds of years ago, but it's the same idea that our society can and should reflect the moral law of God and that our civil laws can and should be also based on that, that God ultimately works through the government, through legislation, through laws that are passed, and that this is how you shape the morality of a nation. Now, Luther wasn't so sure. (laughs) He was skeptical about governments doing that very well. He was skeptical about how laws might do that. And so you could say he had one foot in sort of two worlds, one in sort of the just follow Jesus world and one foot in the maybe governments can be helpful world. Then there was a whole nother group of Protestants. They were called Anabaptists or the radical reformers. And they basically said, no way. (laughs) Government, human government is always going to screw this up, right? Uh, Faith in God and the civil government should never be mixed. Church and state should always be separate. I mean, they would say governments and laws might keep the peace, right? And we all have to obey the laws because we live, you know, in a society and God might use the government in some way to keep the peace. Uh, But followers of Jesus should focus on Jesus and focus on his kingdom and his kingdom will never come through a human government and through human laws and human legislation. That's what this radical group said. And so America, interestingly, becomes this really diverse and confused amalgamation of all of these ideas. And so today you have this strange paradox where so many Christians would strongly uphold religious liberty which strongly uphold the separation of church and state that sort of comes from this radical wing of the Reformation, but at the same time are also working really hard to pass laws, to write legislation, to elect officials, to shape the judicial system in order to create what is basically a new Israel, a nation that is founded on God's moral laws. All right. That was a long and somewhat, hopefully interesting (laughs) side note, Uh, but let's get back to Leviticus, because when I first heard about this threefold understanding of the Old Testament law, and again, I didn't know that, you know, it was from Calvin at the time, Um, but when I first heard of it, it made a lot of sense to me, right? I mean, it's a helpful way of taking all of these laws in the Old Testament and saying, okay, part of this is moral. Part of this is civil, and part of this is ceremonial. And roughly speaking, the moral part is still really helpful for us. The civil and ceremonial parts, uh, maybe it's helpful for us to understand those, but those were really just for Israel back then, not for us anymore. Um, So that's a great start. It's sort of unpacking some of these laws, particularly in Leviticus. But over the years... Uh, the more I've studied, the more I've realized that there are some problems 
with thinking about the Old Testament law in this threefold way. And uh, the biggest problem is this. The Old Testament itself never really uses these categories. I mean, these are modern categories. There is no word for moral in the Old Testament. That's a modern idea. These are modern ideas. These are modern categories. And we are overlaying them onto Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. They are not the categories or the systems of thought than an ancient Israelite would have ever had. And so, for example, all of these laws that we call ceremonial, they would have said these are moral laws too, right? I mean, worshiping God in these ways, relating to God in these ways, like finding forgiveness in God and with each other in these ways are just as important as all the other laws that you're calling moral. Right? In fact, maybe some of the stuff in Leviticus is even more important, right? So, so the ceremonial laws are just as moral as what we would call the moral laws. And all the laws that we call civil, right? They would say those are based on morality too. And it's almost as if all of the law was moral to ancient Israelites. They all come out of moral principles, right? You could also say all of the laws are civil as well. I mean, every single law is part of a contract that the nation of Israel made with God and with one another. In fact, the word that's used over and over is covenant. They would have said, we are in a covenant with each other and we are in a covenant with God to keep these laws as a nation. And so there's this sense that all the laws are moral, all the laws are civil, Right? Every part of this law is part of this covenant that we have with God. And you could also say, I think they would say, every single one of these laws is ceremonial as well. I mean, all of these laws reflect how we worship God, how we relate to Him, whether they're specific rituals or whether they're about how we should live with one another. And so for Israel, It's almost as if you look at all of the laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they really all blend together. There are no separate categories, right? I mean, if if there were separate categories, then we would have a section where God would say to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses, here are all the moral laws. And then there would be another section where the Lord spoke to Moses, here are all the civil laws. And then there would be another section where it's the Lord spoke to Moses, here are all your ceremonial laws. But it's not that way at all. In fact, they're blended totally together. I mean, just look at Leviticus 19 that we just read. Verse 3. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. (laughs) Okay, right there in the same sentence, we have one law that I guess is moral. Respect your mother and father. That sounds kind of moral. But then one that's ceremonial about holidays and ritual, the ritual holiday of Sabbath, right in the same sentence. How does that work? Verse five, when you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, okay, that's ceremonial. Verse nine, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field. Uh, and then it goes on and says, leave the, the grain and the, the grapes, leave the extra for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Okay, now we're back to civil, I think, uh, because this is a law that everyone's supposed to obey, but it's also kind of moral, right? I mean, it's about how you should treat immigrants with compassion. I mean, that's totally moral, but it's also legislating the way that that should be done through your farming practices. I mean, this is an encapsulation of the welfare system in Israel. So that's civil, but it's moral too. Uh, Verse 11, do not steal, do not lie. Okay, that's moral. Verse 13, do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Okay, that sounds kind of moral because this is about being fair, but it's civil too. I mean, this is a specific rule about an employee contract with an employer. 
and the obligation of the employer to pay the employee on time. That is a civil law, right? Now, I could go on and on. We could just walk through chapter 19, and you would see that there's this total blend of moral and civil and ceremonial, if you're trying to use these categories, of all these these th- all three kinds of laws, and they're all blended together in this one chapter. And here we are trying to impose these modern and, and sort of a foreign classification system onto these laws. And if you were to ask Moses, hey, Moses, is chapter 19 moral or civil or ceremonial? You know what he would say? Yep. Yep. It's all of them. <laughs> I don't it, like... What do you mean, Moses? Well, I think you would say, I don't mean the chapter contains moral and civil and ceremonial laws. I mean, the whole chapter is moral and the whole chapter is civil and the whole chapter is ceremonial. It's it's how we reflect God's goodness and holiness. That's moral. It's how we do it as an entire society. That's civil. And it's how we worship God in both our tangible rituals and in our lives. It's all of those things. And so you begin to see, as you read parts of Leviticus and parts of the rest of the law, this threefold classification, as helpful as it is, is first, is perhaps a little too simplistic. It's using categories that really the law doesn't use itself. It's not taking into account the depth and the complexity of all of these laws that are given. So let me propose a new way, a new way of sort of looking at the Old Testament law. And um, this new way, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a classification system that's going to feel more complex and more overwhelming and more tedious at first. And so you don't have to memorize this. I'm just going to kind of unpack some ideas for you. Um, But... uh, but then I'm going to kind of give you a principle that hopefully will help pull it all together. So if you were to categorize all of the laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it seems like you would need more categories than just these three. Um, and so there's one Old Testament scholar, his name is Christopher Wright. He's hugely respected. Um, he's English, and he offers uh, at least five categories, right? He says the three categories that Calvin has are are, are, are just not comprehensive enough. So he offers five categories that, and he, and he tries to follow a little bit more of the categories that are in the, in the law themselves. So he says that you have, first, you have criminal law. So there are things that are spelled out in, in the Old Testament law that are crimes against the whole community, right? This is a crime, and here's the penalty that you have to pay if you do this crime. So just sort of traditional criminal law. Um, he says the second thing you have is a bunch of case law, and if you're a lawyer, you know case law, right? It's a whole bunch of if-then laws that describe very specific situations. If you accidentally hurt someone, you didn't mean to, wasn't premeditated, it wasn't your intent, you didn't do it with malice, but you accidentally hurt someone, then here's what you need to do about that. If you dig a hole in the ground, maybe you're digging a well, and someone else's donkey falls into the hole and gets injured, Here's what you do about that, right? These are, they're like civil laws, uh, but they're not comprehensive. They're just examples that are given. And, and not every example can possibly ever be covered. There's just a bunch of examples that are given. And so it's kind of like, if this ever happens to you, here's what you should do. And if something happens to you in a different circumstance that's not covered in any of these laws, hopefully we've given you enough examples that you can extrapolate what should be done in the circumstance that isn't explicitly described. So there's all this case law. In fact, we're going to see an example of this in Leviticus 24, where a specific case is described. So you have criminal law, you have case law. Um, Wright says the third one you have, category you have, is family law. In ancient Israel, families and heads of families played a huge role in dealing with issues, in dealing with conflicts. Uh, Marriages were arranged under family laws. Um, Adultery and divorce and issues of betrayal were dealt with under family laws. Inheritance uh, was dealt with in family laws, and this is a big part of the law. Any domestic matters were often dealt with in these sort of family-oriented laws. 
Uh, fourth category, you have what he calls compassionate law. And uh, these are all the laws that are civil in a sense, but they're intended as ways for showing compassion and for caring for those who are the most vulnerable in society. These are like the rule we read before, rules about immigrants, rules for helping widows and orphans and the poor, laws about handling debt issues when someone can't pay back the debt and how you would navigate that. And there's always a heart of compassion behind all of these laws. And then the last category he suggests is cultic law. Cultic law, which is similar to Calvin's category of ceremonial law. Um, cultic is a word that scholars often use um, and it's, it's, it's broader than just ceremonial law. And just so you know, cult, it's not used in the, word that, in the way that we use that word sometimes today as a fringe religious group. We talk about a cult that way. In sort of academic scholarship, cult or cultic means anything related to the outward forms and practices and rituals of religious worship. And so then under cultic law, Wright actually delineates between three kinds of cultic laws. There were sacrificial laws. So these were all of the things related to the sacrifices that were brought to the tabernacle, which for Israelites, remember, it's deeply rooted in thanksgiving, in joy, in fellowship with God, in reconciliation with God and with others, in dealing with sin against others, in finding forgiveness and making restitution, all these very tangible things that are sometimes connected to ethics and societal health, but they're wrapped up in these sacrificial laws. And then the second kind of cultic law is calendar laws. We're going to get into those in the next couple of weeks. Um, But this is a, I mean, there's huge sections of all four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that describe the important holidays and feasts and festivals that everyone in society is to observe regularly. And then there are the symbolic laws under cultic laws. And those are typically the hardest for us to wrap our minds around. These are like the dietary and the food laws. These probably include those parts of Leviticus 19 where it talks about not mixing seeds when you're planting crops and and how you should cut your hair and what you should wear. And, And it's because all of these things are somehow symbolic of Israel's holiness. They're symbolic of Israel's distinction from the other nations. Uh, in fact, Leviticus 20, the, 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 the section we just read, it repeats these clean and unclean animal laws at the very end of chapter 20, and then it wraps it up by saying this, verse 26, you are to be holy to me because I am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So all this stuff I'm asking you to do is symbolic in such a way that it physically sets you apart from other people as different than them. So these cultic laws even have a lot of diversity. There's symbolic, and then there's calendar, and then there's sacrificial laws under this. And and so classifying all of these laws in the Old Testament in these descriptive ways isn't always inherently bad. Right? I'm not saying you can never classify them. It can be helpful to say, right? It seems like this was a criminal offense, or this was a case law, or this is one of the laws of compassion, or this is one of those family laws where it was dealt with, or or this was a cultic law, and it was it was more symbolic in nature. So so we can still have some categories, and Wright suggests there's way more categories than than Calvin suggests. And I think his are more helpful. I, I think his categories are more comprehensive. Now, I certainly wouldn't expect you to remember them. I'm not always going to remember them because they're more complex, right? But here's what's important about his categories. They take out the moral category, which I think is most helpful. Because if we label some laws as moral, then other laws are not moral, (laughs) And then it's easy to throw out all the ones that are not moral, that we've labeled as civil or ceremonial or whatever else we've labeled them because they're not grounded in morals. And that's the biggest mistake. 
that we can make right now to just skip entire sections of the law. And typically it's the whole book of Leviticus, right? Because most of Leviticus is labeled as ceremonial or cultic or whatever word you want to give it. But um, but if you think that the only laws in the Old Testament that are still useful for us are the moral ones, and 90% of Leviticus is not moral law, it's one of these other categories, then you're going to tend to skip the whole book. You're just going to write it off as not very helpful anymore. But once you remove the moral category, right, which is more consistent with how ancient Israelites would have viewed the law, it was all moral to them, right? Once you remove one category as these are the moral ones, but everything else is not moral, then you have to revisit all of it and say, okay, some are criminal laws, some are case laws, some are family laws, right? Some are compassionate laws, some are, you know, cultic laws. But all of them might be moral. And if all of them are possibly moral, then what can we learn from all of them? What can we learn from every single law that we read about in the Old Testament? And that's really the ultimate goal, to recognize that there are moral principles in all of these laws. And that's going to take some work, right? Because these laws are embedded in a society that existed 3,000 years ago in a totally different context. And so there are some laws about slavery, and we don't have slavery today in the way they did. This, it was typically indentured servitude or something like that. We don't have that today like they did. There are laws about agriculture. Unless you're a farmer, you don't really deal with agriculture in the same way they did that day, right? So, so we have to still work through their context. We have to understand their worldview. We have to read the book of Leviticus on its own terms, not our modern terms. We have to do all of that. But here's how Wright describes our task. And here's sort of the thing I want to challenge you to think about as we go through Leviticus. Here's what he says, and this is a quote directly from him. He has a book called uh, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. He says this, we need to study and classify the laws of the Old Testament against their own social background in ancient Israel, and then we can discuss what significant moral features or principles emerge within every kind of law they had. Every kind of law. So that when we read about sacrifices, we have to understand their purpose in that context, right? But we can ask bigger questions about these sacrifices. What are some of the moral features and principles that are still incredibly relevant and useful and helpful for us in all of these laws about sacrifices? And we read the purity laws, the dietary laws, chapters 11 and 15 that we talked about. What are some of the moral features and the principles that are still incredibly relevant and useful and helpful for us even in these laws? And then we get to chapter 18, right? It's all about sex. And in some kind of strange ways, it's all about like, don't have sex with other family members, right? And so we need to ask, why was this so important in their social background and in their social context? And then when we do that work, we step back and we say, okay, what moral features and principles are found in these laws that are still incredibly relevant and useful and helpful for us today? Now, one last comment, then I'm going to wrap up. Uh, the New Testament can help you with this, particularly the teachings of Jesus. Because uh, Jesus and the other New Testament writers will often drive home or elucidate or illuminate those moral features, those principles, those truths in the Old Testament law that are still relevant and useful for us. And in fact, get this, Sometimes Jesus even raises the bar. <laughs> it's almost like there are times you read Jesus and stuff he says, and it's like Jesus is saying, hey, here's the moral principle from that specific law in the Old Testament. But just so you know, it's not about that specific law. I mean, the principle behind the law, it applies to your entire life. So don't get hung up on the letter of the law, which was the problem of some 
Jewish or, or religious leaders in his day, he would, he would, it's almost as if he was saying, focus on the bigger principle. And, and so even with sex, Jesus is asked about sex and marriage and adultery and divorce and how all these issues go together. He's asked about that on several occasions. And he talks about the law of Moses. He goes back to the law of Moses. So it's still important for him. But get this, he often raises the standard. It's almost as if Jesus is saying like, hey, just so you know, there's the 22 prohibitions in Leviticus 18 about sex. <laughs> or one point, he talks about Deuteronomy 14. There's some specific instructions in Deuteronomy 14 about marriage and divorce. But just so you know, it's not just about those specific things. It's about something so much larger. It's about a larger understanding of sexuality and marriage and fidelity and commitment. And if you want to understand that, don't just focus on the letter of the law in Leviticus 18 or Deuteronomy 24 or whatever. And you know what he usually does? He goes back to Genesis. If you want to understand that, you go back to Genesis and you try to understand what is God's intent for all of humanity? What was God's intent in creation for these issues? And and then there's another time that Jesus says, hey, um, you know that law about not committing adultery? Hey, I just want to let you know, like, if you lust after someone in your heart, someone who's not your spouse, that's like adultery too, <laughs> right? So again, he's broadening it. It's not just about the specific law. Don't do this specific thing. It's like, what's the principle there? What, what's this law about? Because that's what's most important. And, and so this whole idea that the law is demanding and Jesus is about grace (laughs) and Jesus is easy and the law is about stuff you can't do and Jesus is about like, don't worry about it, you don't have to do all those things. Jesus actually flips that on its head sometimes. Not that Jesus is demanding in a burdensome way, (laughs) but that Jesus will often take these laws from the Old Testament and he'll say, yeah, yeah, that was really important. And in fact, it's actually way bigger and broader than you've even imagined. It's not just about keeping that specific thing. The principle there is so much bigger and broader and applies to so much more of your life than you could have ever imagined. In fact, he says one time, hey, just so you know, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. I came to accomplish the law. I came to live the law out. I came to show you its fullness, to show you that the law was actually getting at something so much bigger and so much richer than you ever realized. And so let's keep that in mind as we continue to move forward in this study of Leviticus, what is the moral feature? What's the principle? What's the, the truth in this story or in this rule or in this law? What's the bigger idea? What's the underlying message that reveals to us something maybe new, maybe significant about who we are, about God, about our world? And about how people of a new order, people of a new wholeness, people of a new way might live in the world. All right, that's all I got today. Thank you for listening and uh, look forward to you joining us again next time.